Hello, welcome along. It's that time of the week where we explore the universe to learn all of those science secrets lurking inside. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you so much for being there, for listening, for following and sharing. It's a brand new episode of the greatest podcast in the history of the universe. None have been better and none will be greater in the future, I promise you that. This week we'll talk to Dr. Kira McGrath, uh, who is the Young Woman Engineer of the Year, all about something that you might take to school in the future and how what you wear might change to save the world. More than 86% said that it was more important to have sustainable clothes in the future than to have clothes that look cool. And so sort of in honour of this, we've decided... Also, we'll get another episode of Amy's Aviation. This week, you can hear how planes can be light and very tough at the same time. If you've ever walked with your umbrella on a windy day, you'll have seen for yourself how much the wind can slow things down. Do you know how they test out different shapes? Here's a clue. And I've got your questions as always. This week, they are on languages and skin. It's all on the way in a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start things off with this week's science in the news. People who live in one seaside town are looking for their seagulls. This is in Barmouth, it's in Wales. They used to have a bustling seagull population. They were always perching on roofs and stealing food, but hardly any are still around. Now, many think that an outbreak of bird flu is to blame. Now, you might not like seagulls when you go to the beach. They're always hovering overhead, trying to nick a chip or two. But any long-lasting damage to a local ecosystem can be uh, very bad, not just for the gulls themselves, but also for other creatures that are nearby that might try and take over. So we need to find out where these seagulls have gone, and we need to cure a lot of them of this bird flu, if that's what's happening. Also, old fishing nets are being recycled. For years, people have been wondering what to do with fishing nets. They were either dumped in the sea or put in bins, both of which aren't good for the environment they can trap seabirds or seals there. But a scheme called Keep Britain Tidy are using these nets by recycling them to become shoes or other things that need a specific type of thread and plastic. I really love this. I love how scientists are coming up with new ways to take what has been used to make it into something new so we don't have to keep creating more waste which can damage the planet. And finally this week, the war in Ukraine is having an effect on a nature reserve uh, named Europe's Amazon. It's the Drevlanaski Reserve, which used to be teeming with different wildlife, and it's almost been deserted as creatures flee bullets, fires and smoke from the war. It's just one impact of a devastating war that's going on over in Ukraine. And it's really sad to hear that this is affecting everything, all the local wildlife and the people who live in the area. Let's catch up with Professor Hallux now. We're on to his hydration help desk series. We've been following the old professor for the last few weeks and he knows everything about everything to do with your body, about what's happening with your heart, with your lungs, with your arms and your legs. Recently, we've been learning all about water and why it's really important for keeping you safe and healthy. Uh, This week, it's all about What happens if there's no water around? Do other drinks make you healthy too, Halix? 
Alex's Hydration Help Desk. Call accepted. Hello, Professor. I know we're lucky to have clean tap water in this country, but where does it come from? Hmm, great question. Let's find out. The water which comes out of the tap has been on a very long journey. Some of the water we drink comes from rainwater, which has been collected in reservoirs. Some comes from rivers and streams. And some comes from aquifers, underground reserves of water which have seeped down through the rocks. Boreholes are used to drill into the aquifer so that the water can be collected. At this stage, the water is unlikely to be fit to drink. It might have sludge and bits of dead animals in it. Professor! Don't worry, Nanobot. Before it gets to our taps, the water goes through treatment plants where it's sifted and sieved to remove all the debris and given a good shake to release any yucky gases. It'll also be filtered many times to remove any sludge. Near the end of the process, a chemical called chlorine, that's the same stuff they use in swimming pools, is added to kill any bacteria. In some areas, fluoride may also be added to help keep teeth healthy. You shouldn't be able to taste either of these chemicals. In fact, you probably never realised they were there before. After all that, all that's left is for the water to travel through a network of pipes to your tap. Hey, got any cool tap facts, Nanobot? Of course. I'm a well of watery wisdom. When you run a bath, you can sometimes tell if the water coming out of the hot tap has got up to temperature. And it's all to do with the way hot and cold water sound. Um, excuse me, Nanobot. Water doesn't make a sound. It hasn't got a mouth. The sound of water splashing into the bath will be different if it's hot or cold. Whilst it's not a big difference, most of us can detect it. Here, see if you can tell which of these is the hot water. Here's the first. And here's the second. If you guessed that the second was the hot water, then you're right. Now, you haven't got a superpower, I'm afraid to say. The explanation is a lot more straightforward. When water gets hot, it becomes more viscous. This means the molecules are able to slip and slide around more than they can when they are cold. It's not a difference we can see, but it's something we're able to hear. That's a great one. Thanks, Nanobot. Hmm, I could just fancy a bath. Alex's Hydration Help Desk, with support from the Children's Health Fund. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Let's get to your questions then. If you've got something sciencey that you really want answered, it can be about anything, uh, as this week's questions prove. Easiest way, get your phone out, uh, record it as a voice message, which you can send to us on our free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Just like this question. Hello, my name is Max and I'm nine years old. I would like to know who created the English language. Thank you for this, Max. Now, English is a language that's evolved over a very long time and it's constantly changing. It's not like a few hundred years ago someone woke up and decided, you know what we should all do? We should all speak one language because that would make it much easier to talk to each other. I think I shall call it English. It's not quite how it happened. In the early part of the first century, this is 400 AD, so around 1600 years ago, England was home to loads of different people from all around Europe. Lots of them were from Germany. And the English language developed from languages that these different Germanic people would speak. Some of them were Saxon, which is why how we speak, the language we speak, is often called Anglo-Saxon. But in the years since then, 
loads of different people from all over the world have come to live in England. They've changed the language a bit. It's been influenced by the places that they grew up from their cultures. And it's constantly changing still today, uh, which is why it's a language that's still spoken the whole world over. Max, thank you for that question. Let's get one more this week. Hi, my name is Carol. What is skin made of? Thank you for your question, Carol. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, The skin is the largest organ in your body. Now it's living. It's growing. It's regenerating like Doctor Who all of the time. You get new skin every 27 days. It's made of cells, which are water, proteins, fats and minerals. They've got four layers. At the top, you've got the epidermis. Under that, you've got the dermis, then the subcutaneous tissue, and then that meets the muscle. And your skin's very important. It protects you from germs. It helps control your temperature to keep you well and healthy. It's also full of nerves that help you spot things that might be harmful to you these might be bugs they might be other predators or it can help you tell how hot or cold the air around you is to try and keep you safe carol thank you for the question if you want to be like max and carol if you want to be a star of the show ask a sciencey question to me easiest way uh use your phone maybe you can borrow your mum's or your dad's or someone nearby because it's absolutely free record it as a voice note send it to us on the free fun kids app or at funkidslive.com It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, this is interesting. The world's first biodegradable school backpack has been unveiled and there is a competition for you to design your very own one. Let's find out more with Dr. Kira McGrath, who is the IET's Young Woman Engineer of the Year. Kira, thank you so much for being there. Thanks so much for having me. So... Having this biodegradable backpack, it comes off the back of a study that kind of says we're really looking at different ways we can save the planet with our clothes. Can you tell us more about this? Absolutely. So the Institution of Engineering and Technology, the IET, did their own study talking to kids to find out what they thought fashion would hold in the future. And what was amazing was that the vast majority, more than 86%, said that it was more important to have sustainable clothes in the future than to have clothes that look cool. So it's really exciting to me to think that kids today are so conscious about the environment and the health of our planet. And so sort of in honor of this, we've decided to, working with Hype and a company called Biophilica, create the world's first biodegradable backpack and make that vision for a sustainable fashion future happen today. Let's talk about the world, the word biodegradable, because some things, if, if they're left on the ground for thousands of years, could be biodegradable, but maybe that doesn't really help with how quickly we need to think about the environment. Uh, just tell us what you mean by the word biodegradable and how long into the future we need things to, to start working with clothes that, that kind of decompose themselves. Sure. So this backpack is made with a special material called tree kind that's been developed by the scientists and the engineers at Biophilica. And it looks kind of like leather. It's really strong and durable. So we know that people can carry around lots of heavy books on their back and and it will be strong enough to hold all of those. But it's actually all plant-based. It's made from leaves. 
and there's absolutely no plastic, there's nothing like that involved in it. And so when the backpack gets to the end of its life, we know that we can just put it out into into the, the earth and it will return back to nature because there's nothing in it that's not derived from plants that's not natural and it's quite exciting that engineers and scientists have been able to come up with something like this inspired by what kids want to see making this backpack and and making potentially other biodegradable clothes which are really good for the environment how how can that be done on quite a big scale? Like it's brilliant having one or maybe two of these backpacks, but to really help the world, we need everyone going to school to be wearing a backpack like this. When we look at sustainable products, how achievable is it to have loads and loads of these being made? Absolutely. So we know from our study that only one in 10 kids think that engineers work in fashion. And I think that's really at the crux of what we would need to see to scale these kinds of things up. We know that engineers are excellent at coming up with clever ways to make things quickly and cheaply. You know, we, we thought not that long ago, 20 years or so ago or 30 years, we were seeing one or two computers appearing around the world. And now we all carry a computer in our pocket in the form of a mobile phone because engineers found a way to make these things small, to make them fast and to make them cheap. So I think it'll be up to the engineers of the future to take things like this new exciting material and figure out how they can make it as quickly and efficiently as possible. And the other thing is, now that we know that the kids of the future want to buy sustainable clothes and sustainable backpacks, that's really going to motivate companies to start making these changes and put them out there for people to buy. Does the type of science that this involves, the fact that these experts are today constantly trying to find different ways to make these backpacks and these clothes, does it mean that in the near future, these products might be quite expensive? I think with every new technology, it can be hard to get the costs down, especially if we're only making one thing, because we have to try a new way of doing something. And that might be quite time consuming. We might have lots of engineers working on it for long hours to to do tests, to make sure these materials are strong enough to survive and that they behave the way that we think. But as you say, as we start to see more of them appear, that's when we can start to see the costs going down because we've done all that testing, we've done all that practicing, and now here's an opportunity to get it out into the world. Kira, you're you are the IET's Young Woman Engineer of the Year, so you've got a brilliant problem-solving brain, I would hope. Uh, I have a list of the top ten fashion items that are hoped for in the future by the kids that were studied. Uh, that, so I wondered if, if we could run through them and you would say maybe how these could be achieved. Okay, right. You can test me and we'll see where we get to. <laughs> right. 38% of people want clothes that can give you energy. How on earth would that work? A, 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 a shell suit stacked with solar panels, maybe? Yeah, to give you energy. I wonder if there's something there about, you know, well, the way we get energy really is from food, isn't it? So maybe you could have a, a solar panel suit that generates some sort of like sugary liquid that you could have a straw and drink from, um, or maybe something that just keeps you warm. We spend a lot of energy trying to keep ourselves warm. So actually, if it could regulate our temperature, it wouldn't give us energy, but it would save us energy. So that could be a way. 
here's a brilliant idea which would save mums and dads so much money. Clothes that grow at the same rate as you. Do we know of any materials that self-grow like that? You know, not that I know of, but I'm not a material scientist, so maybe I'm sure there's someone out there working on this. But I think this is such a good idea. And I feel like this is the kind of thing that kids are great at is they don't let themselves get held back by the preconceptions that we might have. You know, rather than seeing, oh, that's going to be difficult, they see how brilliant of a solution would it be? So I think it's a brilliant idea. It would solve so many problems. You wouldn't have to go shopping as much. There'd be much less waste and it would save money. So I think hopefully these kinds of ideas will get our engineers and scientists thinking about how they could actually do that in the future. Also, talking about backpacks, 32% of people want a backpack that can that can heat food just in case you are absolutely starving on a 20-minute journey to school. Uh, aside from sticking a microwave in your backpack, can you think of any way that could be done? So I was thinking about this and you know you can get really good like thermos flasks and you can carry some soup with you and it'll actually keep it really, really warm. The thing is, when stuff cools down, we need to put a lot of energy into it to try and heat it back up. But once something's already hot, you don't need as much energy to keep it at that temperature. So I wonder if we combined something that could generate a little bit of energy, a little bit of heat. You know, we talked about solar panels. We know solar water heating is a really efficient thing that we can use in our houses. Maybe you could have a little solar water heating system in your backpack that could wrap around your container and keep your food warm for the whole day. We've spoken about how the IET have have made this backpack of the future. Um, There is a way that people listening can help try and design a backpack and maybe that could get made. Can you tell us more? Yes. So the IET have launched this competition, Backpack to the Future. And what we're hoping is that five to 13 year olds will get involved by designing their own backpack with clever gadgets and technology to help them do incredible things. And to enter, all they have to do is draw their backpack design and write a description of how it works. And that's going to get sent out to experts, to engineers like me, to look at them. And the winner is going to have their backpack prototyped by hype and shown in their flagship London store. So it's really an opportunity to take a great idea like some of the ones you've already mentioned and make them a reality. What does someone need to do if they've got a brilliant idea and design? How can they show it to you? So the competition is open until the 30th of October. So there's plenty of time to get involved. And the easiest way to do it is to go to the website. So that is www.engineer-a-better-world.org engineer a better world hyphens in the middle i'm sure if you stick it in google it will come up too with it'll IET. come right up engineer a better world and that's what it's all about a brilliant well it's been a delight to chat and to pick your brains dr kira mcgrath thanks for joining us thanks so much it's time for this week's dangerous dan where we meet some of the mean and cruelest creatures in the world. This week we are headed way down to the bottom of the ocean to say hello to the fangtooth fish. What a brilliant name! When you hear that, the fangtooth fish, you know it needs a place on our dangerous down list, right? It's known to be one of the deepest living fish. They can live three miles under the sea. 
and everything there's incredibly heavy there's a lot of pressure which means it looks a bit strange because creatures that low have to look a bit weird just to survive the common fangtooth grows to about 16 centimeters long so they're not really big but can you guess what makes the fangtooth so bizarre and so dangerous you got it in one. They've got some of the largest teeth in the ocean. These giant fangs that jut right out, ready to chew, to crunch, to carve fish much, much bigger than them. And get this, some of their teeth are so big, their heads have evolved special pockets that the fangs can sit in without damaging its brain. Now, the fang tooth is fine for humans, but as I say... They're very deadly to other animals in the ocean. They can take down creatures so much bigger than them. Now, here's the thing. They might not be damaging to humans physically, really, but they're painful to the eyes. Just take a look at them. They look like something from a sci-fi horror movie, like something that's been yanked out of a volcano. They look wicked. They look mean, which means the fang-tooth fish needs to go on our dangerous Dan list. Let's catch up with Amy's Aviation now. This is our series with Amy, who is a genius at everything flying. She knows how planes get in the air, how they stay there, what they're made of. In the last few weeks, we've been learning about how some planes are made of plastic and paper and wood. This week, it's all about something called composites. Uh, Composites is a a mixture, a blend of materials that helps planes fly, and it makes them really light, but also really tough. Take a listen. Amy's Aviation, with support from the Royal Aeronautical Society. I'm waiting for the bus, and I hope it's a double-decker, because I love to sit at the top. Did you know there's a plane that's also a double-decker? It's called the A380, and it's a super jumbo. The largest passenger plane ever built, so it has plenty of room at the top. Want to find out some more? The company that made the A380 have something else in common with buses too. Their name. They're called Airbus. (laughs) Originally, all they set out to do was build a massive plane that could take more than 500 people. After trying out loads of designs on paper, it seemed that having two floors was the simplest way to do this. It wasn't easy though. They had to tackle some big problems. The first one was the weight. Now, as we've been finding out, planes have to keep their weight down. Not because they're on a diet, but because the heavier they are, the more fuel they need to get them off the ground and reach their cruising speeds. And that's not good for the environment or our ticket prices. A normal plane weighs about three or four hundred tons. That's as heavy as 40 elephants. The A380 is twice as heavy as this, though, even before anyone has got on board. It weighs as much as 80 elephants. I wonder how they would all do up their seatbelts ready for takeoff. <laughs> Please, would all elephants ensure all trunks are placed in the overhead lockers and prepare for takeoff? Okay, there aren't real elephants in an A380, but all that weight could make it just too difficult to get off the ground and stay up in the air. Luckily, the designers had a few tricks up their sleeves. Loads of tests were done to make sure the shape of the plane was as aerodynamic as possible so it could cut through the air easily. If you've ever walked with your umbrella on a windy day, you'll have seen for yourself how much the wind can slow things down. Do you know how they test out different shapes? Here's a clue. It's a wind tunnel. 
A model of the plane is secured in a tunnel and enormous fans push air past it. Sometimes smoke is used to make it easier to see. Sensors on the plane show which surfaces are being pushed by the air the most, so the designers can alter the design to make the air pass as smoothly as possible over the plane. Wind tunnels are pretty expensive, so designers also use lots of computers to run tests. And it's important that they test the shape thoroughly, because once you've built a 400-tonne aircraft, well, you can't really take it back to the shop. <laughs> There's another way that the designers made the A380 as efficient as it could be. It was all to do with the materials it was made from. Normally, aircraft are mostly made of aluminium and steel. As metal are heavy, the designers at Airbus wanted to use as little of them as possible. So, a quarter of this massive plane is made of something called a composite. Do you know what that is? <laughs> a composite is just mixed up materials. Think of it like this. Have you ever been to a birthday party with a piñata? You might have seen that the piñata was made of a composite of paper and glue, squished up into a shape and left to go hard. Before you give it a good bashing with a stick. Mixing two or more things together into composites can give you a material that's stronger than the separate parts would be on their own. Engineers have used composites in aircrafts for decades. Even the very first planes 100 years ago had fabric soaked in resin to make thin and strong skins for the fuselages. The composite that makes the A380 so light is a bit more high-tech than that. Scientists go right down into molecules of carbon to make... Can you guess? It's called carbon fibre. Carbon atoms are stretched into long ribbons that are packed together in a plastic and heated up to really high temperatures to mould them together. They're one quarter as dense as metals like steel, but two or three times stronger. The A380 is one quarter carbon fibre, but there's also a plane that's half carbon fibre. It's called the Dreamliner. As well as being light, it's easy to make into different shapes too, which all help the A380 become a very successful super jumbo. This is my ride. I'll have to settle for the top deck of the bus for now. Chocks away. We'll be back with more from Amy and her aviation at the same time next week on your podcast if you want to learn loads more about how planes stay in the air. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If there's anything science that you want answered on this show, uh, you need to leave it as a voice note for me. You can record that on your phone, tablet or computer. Send it to us. Uh, on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Now, you've heard some series today with Amy's Aviation and with Professor Hallux. We've got loads more of them that you can find wherever you've got this show. They're on Google, Apple, Spotify. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. I'll see you next week. Um, it's got some amazingly pink and white flowers. The leaves look quite kind of f- like um, kind of furry, you know what I mean? It's a warm spring day in late March, and ever since the leaves have started to come out, Roby Joe has been wondering why some trees lose their leaves and some don't. 
and also like how the trees know when it's time to shed their leaves. To find out, join us on the Conversations Curious Kids wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>